0: Well, listen, today is on the Jewish calendar is a very special day. And I, I just thought, given the synchronism, given the fact that today is, in fact, Rosh Hashanah, that it would be good to maybe explore the significance of that to the Jewish mind, but more importantly, explore what's at stake in the Scriptures. So today is Rosh Hashanah, which means New Year. Now, that is not, <laughs> in the Bible, never talks about Rosh Hashanah. But it does talk about another feast, one of the seven Levitical feasts called the Feast of Trumpets. And Rosh Hashanah has replaced the Feast of Trumpets. Yawn, what do you care? Well, let me see if I can make it make sense to you. And let me say this. Uh, You you and I live on this side of the empty tomb and the day of Pentecost, and uh, it's a little too easy for us to be dismissive of that older body of literature that we call the Old Testament. But don't let that happen to you. Uh, So much of what, you know, uh, I'm teaching this class uh, and uh, I, I have the students read a chapter from a book by Walt Kaiser, who's one of the greatest Old Testament authorities of our day. And the, the, the chapter is called the old, the old Testament as the Christian Problem. And the thesis that he pursues, and I think it's very, very valid in that chapter, is that there is no heresy which has ever infected Christian thought that's not born of a misapprehension of the Old Testament. You get the Old Testament right, you're going to get the New Testament right. And yet people consistently think that we can just start with the, old, the New Testament and and somehow figure out the foundation later on. Now that's what we all do, and I'm not getting after you, but It's helpful, I think, to understand. And and in the Old Testament, God, King Yahweh, let's think of him as King Yahweh because in Exodus chapter 40, Moses completes the work on the tabernacle and the glory cloud, which has been resting up on the uh, the Mount Sinai, lifts up and enters the Holy of Holies, takes his place on his throne. The Holy of Holies is his throne room above all other things and his throne is the Ark of the Covenant. I told him last hour, when I talk about the Ark of the Covenant... If you think of a really big boat, you need to spend more time in the Old Testament, right? Can you agree on that? So we're talking about a box, and it's a very sacred box, and on top it has two cherubim, and that box is the throne of King Yahweh. Now, uh, once Yahweh takes his throne, the first thing he does is speak a, a, a very, very extensive, and for the standpoint of New Testament believers, difficult to slog through, remember your Bible Remember when you committed yourself to reading through the Old Testament, you got to Leviticus, and you began to rethink the commitment? Remember that? So the point is, you've got all of these laws which God speaks, and these laws are King Yahweh laying out the statutory codified requirements by which he was going to administer his rule over the covenant people, which is Israel. And those laws include, in Leviticus 27, a cycle of feasts. There are three major feasts every year. We are entering the last of the 3. Because the religious cycle begins in the spring, the first one is Passover. And do you recall that at the first Passover in Exodus chapter 12, Yahweh said in outlining how the Passover was to be honored, this will be the beginning of months for you. So religiously, the the year begins in the spring. Does that make sense to you? And you have okay, now I'm going to try and make sense of this. Stay with me. You have 3 Feast seasons, but seven feasts. And they're grouped this way. And this is this is easier for me. There are three in the spring, one in the summer, three in the fall. And we're entering the fall season right now. These are called, by the way, this is the big one. This is the high holy days. Today is the first day in the high holy days in the Jewish calendar. And that's the way God designed it. I'm going to say in a few minutes that it's been gut-wrenchingly corrupted today, the way it's handled. But let's start out by understanding the way it is in the scriptures. So you have three Three feasts, three distinguishable feasts, but it's all part of one week, one cycle. In the spring, the big one is Passover. But you also have unleavened bread and first fruits. That's in the spring. Now, let me just say this along the way. Each one of these feasts has an agricultural component because God wants them, God demanded, as a matter of fact, that they, on three occasions a year, stop everything they were doing and acknowledge that only God could give them their crops that they were dependent upon god and you know i say this all the time but when you're reading the bible folks in the first place learn to read the bible in terms of its own culture your tendency is to read it in terms of your culture you're getting it all wrong so that's a good reason to go to israel by the way has anybody thought of that But on the other hand, one of the ways, uh, one of the dynamics of of, of ancient culture across the world, really, that is very hard for us to really appreciate is that you literally lived from harvest to harvest. You could never presume grain. Starvation was a real possibility. And starvation came when you didn't have rain and only God could give you the rain. Does that make sense to you? Without rain, no grain. Without grain, no bread for your table, no feed for your livestock, no milk for your children. So this is big stuff. And God built in. So each one of these feasts has an agricultural component. The middle one, Pentecost, is all about the, 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 uh, agriculture. So, all right, now I've got to give you one more piece of background. Many of you know this, but in, winter, and in Israel, you have, two rainy, you have two seasons, the winter rainy season and the summer dry season. It's because Israel lies between the ocean and the desert. And for six months, they get all their wind off the Arabian desert, which is totally. it's a real no-kin-round, muscled- up desert. So all that hot, dry wind coming off. there, no moisture there. that's the summer. Then the winds shift big time, and you get the wind, uh, you get the, the weather for six months of the year off the Mediterranean. That's the winter, that's the rainy season. So they grow their grain in the rainy season. The sun Bakes the earth so hard that you need the early rains. Remember, the Bible talks about the former and latter rains, or the early and later rains. The early rains come in October. They're waiting for them right now. Uh, they're they're going to be starting praying every day for the for the rain to come. And because in antiquity you needed those early rains just to get a plow in the ground. So, and then all winter long you're waiting for rain, and then the latter rain, and then you. So you harvest your grain in the spring and early summer. Does that make sense to you? So, Passover. In the spring, is a feast which primarily, of course, remembers God delivering it from Egypt. But there's also the feast of first fruits, and that's where you go out and you take a sheaf, a sheaf of the, the best grain, and you just wave it before Yahweh uh, in your own sh- field, and you 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 you're, you and there are some psalms you sing and so on, and you are asking God to give you a harvest like these sheaves. That's why he calls first fruits. So you're acknowledging your dependence upon God. You need the rain. You're asking God to give you that that rain. Then, that's the spring feast. Then in the summer, you have the standalone feast, which is Pentecost. Pentecost, it it really celebrates the completion of the grain harvest. So again, you stop what you're doing, and you acknowledge that this harvest came from God. Does that make sense to you? Then all summer long, you work on the the hillside crops. Now, even though you get no rain, oh, you're getting a... (laughs) <laughs> geography lesson. Can you believe this? But even though you get no rain in the summer, uh, what happens is every day, the sun is hot in the summer, the air over the land begins to rise, you get these delicious, beautiful, you, to die for breezes off the Mediterranean. Middle of the afternoon, they're moist. When the sun goes down, that moisture settle. so you get the heavy dew. So, three quarters of the nights, in three quarters of the land, you get a heavy dew. In Israel, that's enough for the Hillside crops. Now, the hillside crops are primarily grapes, olives, figs, and pomegranates. And I like to say, I think there's legitimacy in this. This is my observation. But it seems, it's interesting to me that if in the winter you grow the grain and you can't have life without grain, on the other hand, in the summer you grow these hillside crops, and almost everything pleasant, delightful about life in Israel is a function of those hillside crops. The oil that you use—I I said that oil is the is the Jewish buffalo. They just they squeeze it every and they use it for everything. And uh, if you don't have much oil, you the light in your lamps and the medicinal medicinal ointments and the uh, uh, just the, the bathing and so on. So much of it is a function of oil, cooking, and uh, so and then the, the the grape. Almost everything sweet in the Jewish diet was a function of the grape. These grapes and everything. That's why that Nazarite vow was so crippling because you couldn't eat anything that had from the grape. Remember that. All right, I wonder. So the point is that you got the, you grow your grain in the winter, in the spring at Passover, first fruits, and in the summer, you stop everything you're doing at Passover for a week. And you acknowledge, you focus on God, and you acknowledge that He and He alone can give you the grain that is necessary to living. Then all summer long, you work hard on the the hillside crops, you harvest those in the fall, you celebrate that harvest at the Feast of Tabernacles, and there you spend a whole week acknowledging that God and God alone can give you the capacity to enjoy life. Now, I think this is spiritually salubrious, you know what I'm saying, health-giving, to stop what you're doing and acknowledge, only God can give me life, and only God can give me the capacity to enjoy life. That's the book of Ecclesiastes. So I come way back to it. The, the, the third cycle, the cycle we're in right now, the fall cycle is the high holy days, and you have three feasts. Now the first feast is curious. It is called the Feast of Trumpets. It has been displaced by Rosh Hashanah. So today they'll talk about Rosh Hashanah, which is today. And I'll talk about what, we do, what they do with it today, but... Here's a little, are you with me? I'm looking around. <laughs> this is bold to try and go here. But here's a curious thing. In antiquity, the Jews lived, and oh, they still do, by the way, by a lunar year. In other words, they lived by the moon. Everybody did. You had this thing up in the sky every 29 days or so, went through that cycle. It's pretty handy, for heaven's sakes. So everybody in the world lived by the moon. The problem is that there are not an even number of days in a lunar cycle. So a month... Now, this is going to sound bizarre to you, but it really worked fine. Any month can start on one of two successive days, and you can't tell which day it will be until you get there. Actually, what would happen is it was called the new moon, and to them the new moon was the sliver. And they would stand on a certain hill outside of Jerusalem, and they would wait until, I can't remember for sure. I think it was three or four stars. So it got dark enough that they could, they, they, were like, they could see three or four stars, and at that point, if they didn't see the sliver, they'd say, oh, it's going to be tomorrow. If they did see the sliver, then they would say it's going to be today. Now, that becomes important because that, 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 this is what's called in the Old Testament, again and again, the festival of the new moon. And they had, they had fires that they would, all the way to Babylon, they had fires that they would start to signal everybody that it was the new moon, because this is important because, you see, the Day of Atonement is on the 10th of Tishri. So it's pretty important to decide what is the first of Tishri. Does that make sense to you? So, they would, and, and then when, 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 when they, if they saw the moon, or say it another way, if in fact they had discerned that this was the first of Tishri, they were going to declare it thus. They would blow trumpets, and those trump. This was the feast of trumpets, just to alert you that it is the first of Tishri that we're going to start counting down the ten days of awe, because you're making ready for the day of atonement. Now, the day of atonement is by any standard the single most important religious day of the year you know go with me to Genesis chapter 3 and I, I hope I can make some sense of this but in Genesis chapter 3 of course you have the account of the rebellion of Adam and Eve uh, Eve and Adam if you don't mind but uh, uh, I'm not trying to read anything into that uh, it's not the woman thou gavest me sort of thing but it's just the chronological order which it happened but Uh, but you remember that as soon as, this is so hugely important, that as soon as man rebelled, God set out to redeem. And God, I like to say, established two lines of salvific promise. I may have talked about this before, but there seem to be two lines of salvific promise that are established here that go throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, and we, well, basically, the first one, the first line of salvific uh, blessing or or Revelation, is the promise of a victor in Genesis 3.15, where God says, speaking, by the way, to Satan, that's very important. He's not speaking to Adam and Eve. I like to say Adam and Eve were happy eavesdroppers, but... In point of fact, he was talking to Satan and what he was saying is, you have corrupted this beyond words but this is not over. I am going to have the victory and I'm going to raise up one from the seed of woman who will have victory over you, who will crush your skull. It's the picture of a warrior who has vanquished his enemy and has his foot planted on the on the skull of his, his defeated and, and, and slain enemy. So, God makes this promise, the Father in the Garden of Eden, uh, he, he, he makes the promise, he articulates the promise to Satan. But of course, Adam and Eve, as I say, are delighted to hear it. Now, I'm going to leave that alone. You know that this is the first breath of, uh, of, of of a messianic deliverer. This is where the messianic hope is born. And uh, it's often called the proto-evangelium. Have you ever heard that term? It just means proto-first evangelium gospel, the first word of gospel hope is right there. And it's very important that it comes immediately after man has rebelled. And so you have these these two lines of salvific blessing. The first one is the promise of a redeemer. But there's another, and it's in Genesis 3.21. And it is perhaps a bit more subtle, but folks, well, in, in verse 21 it simply says this. Now remember, by the way, maybe I should background it, you know this, but Adam and Eve, because of their sinfulness, because of their selfishness, and so on, they had become uh, consciousness of their nakedness. Their nakedness became sort of a symbol of their fallenness now. Not that it was, well, I'll just leave it at that. Clearly their nakedness was, was to them a symbol of their fallenness. And uh, they were now alienated from God, but now God is going to provide, uh, well, I'll just read it. It says in verse 21, Also for Adam and his wife the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Now, What's going on there? Well, I think to really come to grips with what's going on there, we just have to remind ourselves of this one simple little fact, and that is that those animals did not zip off those skins. You know what I'm saying? What you have there is the shed blood of an innocent victim, here's the big one, of God's provision. And the death of that animal can suffice to cover the wickedness of the sinner. You know, have you ever thought about this? Could Adam, and I, 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 not, I'm, I don't want to get into election and all that sort of thing, I'm fine, but, but I'm not, in some profound philosophical sense, I'm just saying from what we know of fallen humanity, Adam was fallen. Could they have rejected those skins? Could they have said, hey, I'm happy with my fig leaves? Well, quite frankly, there is a place of eternal condemnation that is going to be full of nothing but people who refused God's provision and clung to their, skin, their, their, their their fig leaves. You know what I'm saying? And I think this is the moment of their conversion. They have accepted God's covering. But here's what I want you to see, that you have these, these two lines of salvific promise that are established there in Genesis 3. One is the promise of a redeemer. The other is a provision of a covering. Now, in both cases... Those, those are seeds. And, and what I mean, they're very, what we call primitive. They're unformed. This is the first very, very simple expression. And all throughout the Old Testament, both of those are going to grow remarkably. And we're going to so, learn so much more about this, this seed of the womb. We're going to learn there's going to be the seed of Abraham. There's going to be the seed of Judah. There's going to be the seed of David. We're going to learn he's going to be born in Bethlehem, a virgin, all this sort of stuff. So the picture is fleshed out, but you never, ever, abandon or compromise, or really, I would say, get beyond the primitive promise, and that is, God is going to raise up a deliverer. That's what it's about. Now, the same thing is true with regard to the provision, that all throughout the Old Testament, you have more and more. And by the way, you know, when you think about it, the Day of Atonement is part of the law. The law was given by Moses in 14, well, it it was given through Moses by Yahweh in 1446, So you've had a whole lot of human history, a whole lot of Old Testament, a whole lot of sacred history that went by. You're you're late in the Old Testament. I mean, if you put creation at 4,000, which I tend to do, you got at least, here you are at 1446, you know what I'm saying? You got 2,600 years have already gone by. But the point is that, that the idea of a sacrificial offering, which can be which can cover the sin of the way. It doesn't begin at the Day of Atonement. This is just the fine-tuning and giving it more careful expression. It begins right there in Genesis 3. So here's what I'm saying to you, that by the time you get to Moses, indeed, God, as part of the cycle of feasts, God institutes this remarkable annual uh, feast and sacrificial day, this day of sacrifice, called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And it it is, it is just an enlargement, is that better, an embellishment, a, a more careful elucidation of the principle that God first established way back there in the garden. Now, let's talk about the Day of Atonement. I think you're familiar with it. I won't get into it too deeply, but you know that this is the one day of the year when the high priest, after seven days of preparation, after putting on brand new garments and, and so on, after cleansing himself so carefully he would offer two sacrifices, and he would go, first of all, with a sacrifice for himself into the Holy of Holies, and then secondly, he would go with the sacrifice of a goat, the blood of a goat, and he would go into the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies, again, is that inner sanctum, that uh, inner chamber that uh, was separated. Nobody could go on any day of the year except for the, the high priest on this day. Uh, my couple of caveats there. But, but basically, in terms of the biblical service, that's the way it worked. What he would do, and, and this is where you've got to, you, you, to understand this, you've got to have some idea of the arrangement of the furniture. And there was only one piece of furniture in the Holy of Holies, and it was the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is a box. Inside the box is, well, there are actually three items, but the important one for this purpose is the tables of the law, this reminder of God's holiness. The box has above it these two carved cherubim. They are a replica of the heavenly tabernacle. Now, I don't know, do you want to say it's physical or whatever, but there is a tabernacle where Yahweh exists really, right? I mean, Ezekiel was taken. We go with Ezekiel into that place. We go with Isaiah and so on. And, and you remember that in those visions where they are taken into the heavenly tabernacle, uh, God is surrounded by these seraphim and cherubim. So uh, God caused, told Moses to carve two cherubim to represent that because that is God, the King Yahweh's throne, and the glory cloud dwells above the, the box and between the cherubim, right? You got that in your head? So what does the priest do? He takes that blood You know, I I did this last hour. Let me see if it will work any better. The second verse of Robert Robinson's Come Thou Fount. I really cherish this verse. Can you say it with me? I'll bet you can. I'll start it. Here I raise, what? Come on, you know it, don't you? Here I raise my Ebenezer. Hither by thy help I am come, and I trust by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger Wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue me from danger, help me, what? What is it? Interposed. Now, here's a curious thing. Modern hymnals have almost universally taken out that word interposed and put in the word bought me. And that may be what you hear in your head. He to rescue me from danger bought me with his precious blood. The way Robinson wrote it was interposed. But I think what happened, and I'm taking a survey, but I think what happened is that modern Christian publishers just decided that the Christian public couldn't handle interpose. They wouldn't know what that was all about. Well, let me tell you what it's about, and it's hugely important. And I'll, I'll, I'll say this. I don't think you should go very far in your study of the death of Jesus but what you start back there with the Day of Atonement because the Day of Atonement was crafted to be such a careful, compelling picture of what Jesus accomplished on Calvary. And therefore, this is what would happen: the high priest would go in, and he would take the blood of that animal, and he would sprinkle it on the lid of the ark. Why is that significant? Here's a holy God and the person of the glory cloud. Here is the, the here are the tablets of the law, which bespeak the fact that His standards have been violated. And what can you do to assuage to to uh, uh, what's the word uh, to uh, what can you do to assuage the anger of God? It takes, that's what's happening. You're interposing that. It's a beautiful picture that it's the shed blood of an innocent victim of God's choosing, which is able to cover the holiness of God. What is that? He sprinkles the blood on the lid of the ark. What's the name of that lid? You know, you should know this. It's called the mercy seat. Why is it called the mercy seat? You see all that's pictured there? It's huge. It's huge. Now let me leave that for a minute and go to uh, another issue. And that is, and I'm just going to share you this, with this, this with you very quickly. And please know my heart. I, I love the Jewish people. I love Jewish culture. I will be eternally in their debt. I, I honor it in so many ways. I find it delightful. I love being around it. But my heart breaks for the hardness of heart that Paul talks about, the blindness, and maybe there's no place where the blindness which has come upon Israel is more manifest than in the way they handle the Day of Atonement. Now, this is how they understood it. And this is universal, and this is what's going on. I don't believe there's a strong Jewish population here, is there? So I, I don't know if you interact, but, but uh, this is what the whole Jewish world worldwide <laughs> is focused on for the next 10 days. Because they believe that on the Rosh Hashanah, on the first of Tishri, what when the Bible was the Feast of Trump is now Rosh Hashanah. What happens on Rosh Hashanah is that God inscribes the name of every human being on Earth, you included, in one of two books. And those books are the Book of the Living, and the Book of the Dead. And the significance of that is this. Now watch this, that if your name is inscribed in the Book of the Living, that means you're going to live through this calendar year from Tishri to Tishri, and it's 57-something. Uh, I don't remember the year, but it's in their, in their accounting. But in other words, the next calendar year, you're going to live if your name's in the Book of the Living. If your name is in the Book of the Dead, you're going to die this year. That's what it means. That's all it means. But now there are 10 days between now and Yom Kippur. And what happens on Yom Kippur in their mind is that God seals those books. But you have these 10 days to talk God in to taking your your name out of the book of the dead and putting it in the book of the living. And you do that by good works, by alms, by making things right with people you've wronged, by one of the curious, really, really curious things. It was always so curious to me. One of the very, very careful liturgical steps that Jewish people do is they disavow their vows. I mean, there's a public ceremony where they disavow their vows. And I always thought, well, that's not a very honorable, noble, virtuous thing, is it? Well, it comes from the Middle Ages when so many, so many Jews were forced to embrace Christianity and to pronounce a vow And then on Yom Kippur, they would sneak off and disavow that vow. But all of that is born of this this mentality. And and by the way, the standard greeting, and you'll hear this, it's a little more, this is kind of an abbreviation, it's all I know, but you'll hear it. I got an email the other day, and it said, Shana Tava. And Shana Tava means happy sealing, S-E-A-L-I-N-G. May your name be sealed in the book of life. And that happens on Yom Kippur. Now, what's tragic about that is that here God crafted this marvelous, laid out, they still got their scriptures, they can go back, they can read it, they can see what God was doing, and what God was doing was teaching them that the only hope you have is in that victim whom God provides, and he dies the death you deserve to die. Now, it was animals in the Old Testament, but still, that's God's teaching. It started way back there in Genesis 3, and and it is an unspeakable heartache in my mind to just to contemplate the, the the what has been done to it. This is absolutely universal. Now, I just thought I've, I've only got a couple of, a few minutes left, but I'm going to try and do something real quickly. Go with me to Matthew. Well, let me just walk you through something. See, and I don't know if I can if I if I can make this very clear to you, but it's curious to me. I mean, it's it's instructive, and I think it's worthy of contemplation. That on the one hand. As I say, way back there in Genesis 3, God made tunics of skin. He covered them graciously. They accepted that covering. An animal died in order that covering might be provided. So you got that seminal expression of this marvelous reality that sin can be covered only by the sacrificial death of an innocent victim of God's provision. Now, that's going to grow throughout the Old Testament, and it reaches kind of a a pedagogical, if you don't mind, apex or apogee there with the Day of Atonement that is so very, very instructive. But all of that, of course, is anticipatory to Jesus. And one might think that given all of that instruction and given the fact that from the very very beginning, you had to be—you were taught to look to God's provision of, a, of, of, of an innocent victim, and so you would have thought that maybe when Jesus came, they would have recognized that in Him, they would have seen Him. That it's a curious thing that they did not. Nobody did. As a matter of fact, I can find in the record. All right, maybe it won't make sense to say this. I'll say that. Say that. I'll, I'll save it for a minute you think of Jesus as coming to die. When you think of Jesus' ministry, you think he came to die. Well, amen and amen. On the other hand, he came as Messiah. He came to make a legitimate, bona fide offer of himself as the Messiah who would bring a kingdom. And thousands and, and tens of the hundred thousand of people, who knows how many, bowed the knee to that claim and become followers of his. But here's a curious thing. As I say, you think of him as coming to die. Here's a curious thing. It was not until... Almost three years into a a three-and-a-half-year ministry that Jesus, for the first time, began to speak of dying. It's Matthew 16, verse 21. Jesus was a good teacher, and it's really fascinating to put this episode in its context, its historical context, because you trace the story, and you'll see, unmistakably, that late in his ministry, about about two-and-a-half years into his ministry, after his baptism... Jesus, having been with these 12 disciples now for several months, better part of two years, eh, better part of a year and a half, and they've taught with him, they've listened to him day after day, they've done miracles in his behalf and so on. But about two and a half years into Jesus' ministry, Jesus, who was a very, very good teacher, uh, I'm sure he'd be congratulated to hear me say that. He was a superb teacher. For but my point is he was very careful about it. He's not doing this carelessly is all I'm saying. And, and the fact is that up until that time, he had never spoken about death. And he knew that when he did begin to speak about a dying his dying, it was gonna be so horribly disconcerting to his disciples, he's gonna to have to spend time with them. And so he contrived, it took him about four months. He tried Sophanesia, that didn't work. He tried Decapolis, that didn't work. He tried to sneak back into the Galilee. And finally, Jesus very, very creatively, very being wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove, Jesus contrived to take his disciples, just the 12, up to the foothills of Mount Hermon, way north of the Sea of Galilee, about 25 miles. And there, somewhere in the foothills of Mount Hermon, Herman, he got him along. The region of Caesarea Philippi. And here you have Matthew 16, 21. You're welcome to look at that verse. I I teach this quite often, so I kind of got it in my head. Because this is what the verse says. And it's very instructive. It says, now again, are you with me? This is almost three years into Jesus' three-and-a-half-year ministry. This is very late in his ministry. And it says, and this is how the, the Greek reads, actually. From that time forth began Jesus Now, that tells you a couple of things. Number one, he hadn't done it before. Number two, he's going to do it again and again. So from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how he will be taken to Jerusalem, suffer many things of the chief priests and scribes, and be killed. Now, every time he says that, he says, and on the third day rise again. What's curious is the way his disciples react. You remember this. It was Peter primarily. And I always say you might expect, given all the, the fact that in the Old Testament it, all, it, it anticipates the death of Messiah and so on, you might think that Peter would say, well, of course, we know that. we got Isaiah 53. We've been wondering when you start talking about this, for heaven's sakes. No, you remember it says that Peter took Jesus. And again, uh, most translations have Peter took him aside as if he said, Jesus, we need to talk about this. You know, I think he took him like this. He took Jesus. He seized him and he said, far be it from thee we got no room in our theology for a dying Messiah. You are Messiah. You're coming with a kingdom. That kingdom lasts for eternity. You tell me where dying is in that. And they were horrified. They were scandalized. Now, here's a curious, I think this is so interesting. About a week later, Jesus took three of them, Peter, James, and John, and he went into another mountaintop nearby, apart from the other nine. And you remember that the disciples fell asleep and Jesus was praying, and when the disciples awoke, they saw Jesus, here's the Greek word, metamorphosed into his kingdom glory. And for a few spectacular moments, there in the privacy of that wooded hillside at the foot of Mount Hermon, his disciples, those three, looked on to the blazing glory of Jesus as he will be when we see him in the millennium. By the way, one of those three is going to see Jesus in that form again. Who's that? You remember? Remember John on the Isle of Patmos, Revelation chapter one? He sees exactly the same thing. And there's important. But, but the point is that, and, and by the way, here's, here's an interesting thing, especially at this season of the year, perhaps, when, when uh Uh, When Peter looked up, now remember, it was Peter who said, no, you're not going to die. And when Peter looked up, he said, he woke up and he saw Jesus in his kingdom glory, and Peter's response was, it's good to be here. Let's build three booths. Now, do you hear what Peter's saying? He's saying, I was right all along. Here we are. The booths bespeak the kingdom. So let's just get it on. And at that point, the Father speaks from heaven. And there's a sternness about this. As a matter of fact, I like saying the vernacular, the the Father speaks and says, Peter, this is my son. When he talks to you, specifically about dying, when he talks to you, shut up and listen. That's really the Spirit. When he talks, you listen. That's what it took to get Peter. and, And he still isn't going for it. But that whole episode is so Curious. Now, let me ask you a question real quickly. I've got to be done. But Jesus tells them he's going to die in Matthew 16. About seven days later, he takes three of them up into a mountainside. What happened in those six or seven days? Well, I think what must have happened is Jesus continued to speak of this and try and help them understand that the Bible demanded it and he was going to die, and they wouldn't. Accept it. And, and I think Jesus, as time went by, began to realize you know what? And this is clear in the record. I haven't got time to walk you through it, but it's clear in the record. When Jesus told them he was going to die, they began to doubt whether he really was the Messiah. After doing all those miracles, after doing all uh, 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 teaching on his behalf and so on, they, they, they're, they're thinking, maybe he's not the one. And Jesus, I believe, went to the Father and said, We got to do something. These men are jumping ship. And I can't dissuade him. This is so foreign to him. And so they kind of contrive this episode where the Father in Heaven condescends to give Jesus a few moments of kingdom physical glory just to reinforce. That's what's going on. That's all that's going on there, to reinforce the staggering faith. And by the way, after that episode, they go back To the other nine, do you remember this? This all fits together. you got to put it together. They go back to the other nine, and the other nine who weren't there for the transfiguration are trying to drive a demon out of a young man, and they can't do it. And Jesus comes and does it, and then those nine disciples say to Jesus, why couldn't we we drive him out? We did it before. Jesus said, because of your staggering faith. What faith? They had begun to question whether he was genuinely the Messiah. And this is exactly... What Peter gets out of it, when he reminds us of it, when he appeals to it in 2 Peter, and he's talking to, he's writing to people who were themselves begin to question the second coming, whether Jesus was coming in, in the kingdom, and he said, we didn't bring you cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of the Lord, because we were with him in the most holy mount, and we heard the voice. So what did that experience mean to Peter? It reinforced his coming. Now, now, why do I take you there? Simply this, that It's hard for us to imagine how difficult it was to bow the knee to the reality that Jesus was going to die. The people closest to him never got it until after the resurrection. Even the death. You know, I I keep saying, every time Jesus said he was going to die, in the next breath he said, on the third day I'll rise again. And you might have thought that one or two of the disciples would have said, look, he said again and again, he's coming out of the tomb, he's done some pretty amazing things. Why don't we go hide behind a tree and just watch and see what happens? No, they didn't do that. And when the women came from the tomb reporting the empty tomb, they said, you're crazy, we don't believe that. And, and, and Jesus, I'm sorry, Luke tells this remarkable story in Luke 24 of two disciples, now they weren't one of the 12, but, but very close disciples of Jesus who were on that road to Emmaus, and of course Jesus comes in to recognize him, and uh, what's going on, oh, haven't you heard, and so on. And in telling the story, those two disciples say this. They say, we thought he was the Messiah, but we're giving up, he's a dead guy. And of course Jesus' response is, Oh, fools and slow of heart! I'll believe all that the, the, the prophet, uh, that the Moses and the prophets said. And then it says, beginning at Moses and going through all the prophets. I keep saying, I, I hope they recorded this lecture because I want to hear this lecture. Let me tell you something. But he, he, he revealed to him how, again and again, the Old Testament teaches that Messiah must needs die and then reign. Now, where am I taking with that whole thing? We we have the 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 the, the Advantage of a remarkable vantage point. We have the whole story spelled out. We can look at the old, the new. But I'm telling you, as it played itself out, with all of the care and deliberate uh, uh, planning of a, a, a divine pedagogue, as that powerful reality, that Messiah was going to be the fulfillment. As a matter of fact, I like to say it this way, that in the Old Testament... You've got Genesis 3, I'm sorry, Genesis 3, you've got the establishment of this line of this promise that there's going to be a seed of the woman that's going to defeat the tempter. And then you've got this provision that, that the only way to cover sin is to shed blood of an innocent victim of God's provision. Somewhere along the line, those two come together. And we discover they weren't two lines. It was one line. But it took... An empty tomb to help people see that. Does that make sense to you? And I just think it's important for us to to appreciate, to some degree, uh, the 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 monumental, uh, I guess one would say, difficulty the of of, of God's plan that we rather take for granted. Now let me go to John 19 because I'm going to tie this together in some simple way. Do you understand what I'm saying though with um, that whole event? You know, I, I started saying that I checked myself, but. Uh, Jesus again and again told his disciples, told people openly that he was going to die. After that first event of Matthew 16, during the last six months of his life, again and again, and there are four times that are recorded. Luke 18, Matthew 19, uh, uh, Luke, 18, Luke 19 again, he took them aside and he told them, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer everything that the Son of Man is going to suffer in the Old Testament, and I'm going to be killed and rise again. and on the third day I'll rise again. I can only find one person in the record who actually believed it. There was one person who took Jesus seriously when he said he was going to die, and who was that? That was Mary, and that's why she anointed. When she anointed Jesus on that Saturday night in Bethany, and Jesus rebuked those who rebuked her and said, "Leave her alone. She is doing this against the day." Of my burial, she's anticipating my burial, and then he says, "Wherever this story is told, she will be remembered with honor." Why? She's the one person who actually listened. Clearly, the apostles didn't. And uh, so, I'm just, I, I, the point being that that, as I say, we have the advantage of of hindsight, and it all fits together for us. But in point of fact, let's tie it all together because you've got that seminal pros- promise. Uh, promise and provision back there in Genesis 3, the coats of skin, and it's unfolded and it reaches perhaps its highest expression and most careful and deliberate and instructive instruction in, in, in what we're going to, what the Jewish world is going to mistakenly or wrongly celebrate this in 10 days, the, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. By the way, I never made it that five days later is when the Feast of Tabernacles starts and that's when they make their sukkah and live out and anticipate the kingdom. But uh, that's their favorite feast of the year. But in John 19, you have John's record of one of Jesus' sayings, on the guy, I say two, but I think it's one. And I've talked about this to you before, so forgive me if it's entirely redundant, but it's it's a hugely, it certainly is worthy of our attention more than once. And and my point is that what was seminally articulated in Genesis 321 when God provided tunics, and what was given such careful expression and anticipation in the Day of Atonement as it looked forward. It's actually accomplished by Jesus on the cross. And he does, in fact, he, he is, that's why I say the, the two lines come together and we realize that in point of fact, the seed of the woman is also the final and infinite and sufficient sacrifice, victim of God's choosing and provision who is going to give himself and die the death you and I deserve to die. So what was begun back there in Genesis 321, by Jesus' own testimony, is marvelously and gloriously brought to completion here in John 19 and verse 28. Now, let me just give you this background real quick. Jesus, of course, is turned over to be crucified about 6 o'clock in the morning on a Friday, uh, April 3rd, 33 AD. He is hauled out to be by about 9 o'clock. He is hanging on a cross. For the first three hours, it is light. The light remains normal. He speaks three times and then at dark at at noon God draws what I like to call a curtain of grayness across this scene. It's not it's not an eclipse. It's supernatural, and it's not a pitch darkness because God desperately wants you to see what's happening. But what's happening is such a high-handed violation. It is the most awfully criminal violation of all that is good and holy and just. And, and so it, it is such an offense to the character of God. It is of his doing, but it is ultimately, but it is such an offense that he draws this remarkable uh, curtain of grayness across it and now Jesus hangs for three hours in silence. At the end of those three hours, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I think that's the most important insight we have in the Bible as to the dynamics of what's going on there. When you and I think of death, we think of physical death. Physical death is an afterthought with God. I'm an old guy. It's getting closer and closer. It's something you think about. But I'm telling you, it's an afterthought with God. I always say, you know how hard it is for God to fix physical death? Death. Lazarus, come out here. That's it, it's done. He hops off the shelf and walks out for heaven's sake. He hops out. You know how hard it is for God to fix spiritual death? It's this right here. Because the, the issue in the Bible, and the first time we encounter death in the Bible is in Genesis 3, and God says to Adam, In the day you eat it, you're going to die. He lived in 938 years before he died physically, but on the day he ate it, he died. He had walked in the cool of the day with God, and now he is fleeing from God, he is alienated from God, he's fearful of God. That's what it is to spiritually die. God created you to know him and to enjoy him above all other things. As a matter of fact, nothing in your life will work. Nothing in this life or the next will work. You'll know no real measure of contentment and satisfaction and, and fruitfulness apart from a right relationship with that God who Crafted you to know and enjoy Him. But by reason of sin, we are alienated from God. Now, there is no more perfect relationship in the moral universe than that which exists between the persons of the Trinity. We don't even understand the concept of a trinity. It teaches us that we serve a God and how I cherish this truth, whose very nature it is to exist in, in relationship. Relationship is the most meaningful and, and precious element of human life. We're made in his image I tell people all the time, if you just conceptualize or if you can perish the thought, remember some crisis, some heartache in your life that that brought you to the end, I mean, just brought you to such despair that you wondered if it was worth going on or if you can imagine what that might be, I'll guarantee almost that it won't have to do with money. It won't have to do with physical health. It'll have to do with relationship. There is nothing more precious than relationship. And the fact is that the relationship that is so perfect between the person, between the father and the son. In some inscrutable sense, but it's reflected in that phrase, my God, my God, in some inscrutable sense, the father judicially disfellowshipped the son, and I believe it was every bit as painful and emotionally horrific to the father as it was to the son. as any parent who has had to turn back on a child. And, 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 and for those, those moments, Jesus endured spiritual death. And the awfulness of that spiritual death is immediately a function of the deepness of the relationship that makes sense to you? So I think as close as we can get is this, that on the cross, Jesus was judicially forsaken and he became, not only in terms of physical death, but more importantly, in terms of spiritual death, he became that victim who died the death that you and I deserve to die. But after those three hours, Jesus said, and this is why I love, this passage just means so much to me, verse 28, he speaks again. And in John 19, 28, it says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished. Now listen, folks, the atoning work was done on the cross. So now, knowing that all things were accomplished, Jesus, in order that the scriptures might be fulfilled, Jesus said, I thirst. And I said, right, that, that, you know, I'd read that. It always seemed to me like sort of an exercise. You know the uh, uh, Sesame Street, which one of these is not like the other exercise? You know, it seemed like you got seven sayings, but which one of these is not like the other? You know what I'm saying? I thirst. I think there are six sayings. And the fact is that after those six hours on the cross, after those three hours of uh, knowing the unspeakable, I believe that we will spend eternity exploring the depths of that experience. The more we know about God, the more we know about God, the Father and God the Son, the deeper our understanding is going to be of the horror of what he endured for us there. And of course, he's saving us from that eternal destiny. But I finished the thought. The, after hanging there for all those hours, one of the things we know dead sure about, about crucifixion is it saps every drop of moisture from your body. Many men would die of asphyxiation because they lost the capacity to breathe. Their, their throat would become so swollen, swollen and their, their, their voice box, of course, entirely parched and their tongue so distended and swollen and so on that they couldn't even breathe. And... Uh, uh, I believe what's happened here is this, that Jesus, after those hours on the cross, his, his, his body is so racked and his, his voice is so crippled that he can't speak. And he has something that he desperately wants to say. And he has something to say that the whole moral universe longs to hear him say. And he has something to say that he's paid a bottomless price to earn the right to say. But he didn't have the strength to say it. So I think he gathers himself with whatever little strength he has, and he croaks out the the words, I thirst. And only the ones perhaps at the the foot of the cross could even hear it. And a soldier takes a sponge and lifts it up, and I picture Jesus spending some moments trying to get a little life back into that throat, which is so parched, because he has something he desperately wants to say. And when he gets that strength, as he hangs there, he cries out, it is finished. It's done. It's done. The books are balanced. What was promised way back there in Genesis three? What was pictured at the God-blessed Day of Atonement? It's done. And I always think, what could be more offensive? And it's in this context that I, I say that, that that honestly, your heart breaks over over the way that very sacred cycle of days is handled today in the Jewish world. Because what could be more what, what could be more offensive, and what could be more uh, Uh, What could break the heart of that giving God more thoroughly than for us to think that we can add something to it? It's finished. It's done. The books are balanced. And now there remains only for you to fall into the arms of the Savior who has done that on your behalf. So it's the Day of Atonement. There's much to learn, much to celebrate, maybe much to be disappointed by in terms of the way it's celebrated. But there is this blessed reality. It is finished. Father, thank you for the gift of your son. Thank you for that marvelous life that he lived, but the death that he died. And thank you, Father, for the price that he paid. And all of that we could not have done. But, Father, he has done it on our behalf. And now, because that sacrificial work is finished, we can have the confidence that as we rest in Jesus... Our sins are covered. Thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen.